Okay, we're pushing on into uh, the next few chapters of following Jesus. When I decided that I'd preach on these chapters this morning, when I looked at them again, I thought, what on earth did I have in mind? Um, but God knows what he's doing. We trust together and uh, following Jesus towards a broken heart. There's a thread that runs through the next few chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, several threads. Actually, I want to pull one of those threads out. Uh, maybe the key one this morning that runs through these next few uh, uh, verses. And then uh, next week we'll look at uh, God's heart for the lost in those chapters that unfold. We begin then with the sign of Jonah. Luke chapter 11, verse 29. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asked for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. I don't know about you, but we tend to think more about the fish in the story of Jonah than in anything else. And we get so sidetracked by what happened to Jonah in the belly of the whale that we miss perhaps some of the more important things that his story has to teach us. Turn with me, would you, to to the the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 3. It's page 928 if you're using uh, a Bible in front of you. If uh, you're not, then you'll either need to look it up or just turn straight to it because you're such a godly person that you have all the books memorized and can flip it open straight away. Book of Jonah, chapter 3. So we think about what Jesus was alluding to when he talked about the sign of Jonah. Jonah then chapter 3, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. We worship the God of the second chance. Hallelujah. Jonah's story uh, would not have been written, neither would ours, if we did not worship the God of the second chance. God had said to Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach. Jonah effectively had said, no. I'm off in the other direction. God caught his attention with the help of a big whale. And then God comes back to Jonah a second time and says, Jonah, let's try this all over again. Would you go and preach to Nineveh? Verse 2, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. And if you go back to chapter 1 of Jonah, verse 2, you'll see that the message was to preach God's judgment because the evil, the wickedness of the generation, the people of Nineveh had risen up before God and enough was enough. Jonah obeyed, verse 3, the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city, a visit required three days. Three days then to get round the city, three days to preach to everybody. But on the first day, God's really on the move here, uh, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. An amazing turnaround in just one day's worth of preaching. Uh, And then the king gets in on the act, not to be outdone. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, 
Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. An amazing exposure of the change in their hearts. We're going to do this and maybe, but even if God doesn't, led by the king, we see our evil ways, we see our violence and we're turning from it. Massive change of heart. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, he said, tough, it's way too late. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. What's the man of God's response to the grace of God? Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? Is this not what I said you would do? I knew that if I went to that miserable people and if they repented, you'd have mercy on them. And I, I couldn't bear you loving those people that I don't like. It's like paraphrase, but essentially that's what he says. This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life. You see, we think we know why Jonah ran. If we listen to the story in Sunday school, we understand why he ran away, because he was afraid to preach like we feel that we are. He was afraid to go like we feel we are. He was afraid to stand up for God like we feel we are. So he ran away. But that's not why Jonah ran. Jonah ran because he couldn't bear the thought of God forgiving the Ninevites. God is way, way more merciful than us. Way more merciful. And that's a really important thing just to hang uh, at the back of our minds as we look at these verses in Luke. Let's go back there for a moment. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation, like Nineveh. This is a, a wicked generation. What's he alluding to? He's alluding to the the strand of, of the Old Testament where God says, wickedness will be judged. I am a just God and I will not leave wickedness unjudged, undealt with forever. Judgment is coming. The sign of Jonah is that God pronounces that judgment. That was the message that Jonah brought to the Ninevites, that that there will be a time when God will say, enough is enough. And who could blame God for saying, enough is enough? Sometimes as we think about the evil in our world today, we want God to say, enough's enough right now, when it comes close to our door. Enough is enough. But more than that, so much more than that. Verse 30. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, 
so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. Judgment is coming, but grace is being offered. And that's the tension that's in these verses. Judgment is coming, but grace is being offered. God in his graciousness sent Jonah to the Ninevites. God in his graciousness is sending the Son of Man to these people. Even the Queen of Sheba, verse 31, the pagan Queen of uh, Sheba, Queen of the South, uh, will rise at the judgment with the men of this generation. For she came to Solomon in the days of old, recognizing the God that he worshipped and seeking him for wisdom. The Queen of Sheba had a change of heart. And so turned to Solomon and to the living God in her hour of need. So you get the, the force of, of this, that there are these uh, Gentile pagan nations that are facing God's judgment. God's judgment is coming, will come, it's just a matter of time. But before it comes, grace is on offer. How will you, how will they respond? What did they do? Well, then, this is the punchline in verse 32. So the men of, Is- of Nineveh will stand at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and no one greater than Jonah is here. Their response to the grace of God was to repent, to turn around. And that's the thread that that Jesus picks up here with the sign of Jonah and will run right through these next uh, few chapters of Luke's Gospel. The call for people to repent in the face of God's judgment that is coming. Let's just pause for a moment before we think about some of those words that Jesus said in uh, uh, in the verses that follow. Just to think about this repentance to get it straight in our minds. Whatever we think about repentance, and it's not a very popular word, let's face it, we have to and cannot overlook the fact that for Jesus, repentance was fundamental. The key message that he preached around the... um, Uh, uh, around the, the towns of Galilee was this one. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Typically, we talk about the believing bit. We like to talk about the need to believe in Jesus, to put our trust in him. In fact, we will talk like that about someone who becomes a Christian. Have you put your trust in Jesus? That's a language that we would know and understand. Have you believed on him or in him and all of that's great but what gets lost in our churches what gets lost in our preaching what gets lost in our understanding because we don't use the language very much and perhaps because our experience has been so difficult with this is the whole idea of repentance repent and believe is fundamental to the christian life It doesn't say, find a church that you really like and believe in Jesus. Partly because there are no churches that you'll really like. And partly because believing in Jesus is not the whole story. Jesus says, repent and believe. What I want to talk about, just very quickly, because it's dead simple this morning, is bringing this repentance bit 
a little more on our agenda than perhaps it would naturally be. Because I want to believe in Jesus, and I want to love Jesus, and I want to serve Jesus, and I love worshipping Jesus, and repent and believe. And I think maybe we struggle with repentance so much is because we've misunderstood it. You see, typically we've thought of repentance as me turning my behavior around. Repentance being me choosing to behave differently. If I think of repentance as changing my behavior, then it works something like this. I need to give up buying things that I don't really need and I can't really afford. So I'm going to change my behavior. I'm going to try not to buy things I don't need and I can't afford. So I'm not going to buy things that I don't need and can't afford. And whilst I'm not doing that, I'm thinking all the time about the things I don't need and I can't afford. This is the crucial bit. My heart still wants me to buy things I don't need and can't afford, but I'm now telling myself that I'm not going to do those things because I've decided to turn my behavior around and therefore I'm not going to buy things I don't need and can no longer afford or can never afford. I'm determined not to, and so I'm resisting my heart. That's the kind of repentance that we often talk about. Anyone understand what I'm talking about? And so our one... I'm doing really well. Thinking a bit too much about what I no longer want to buy and don't need and can't afford, but I'm doing, I'm winning. First hour, two hours, three hours, I'm an overcomer. I'm standing against this desire in my heart and turning my behavior around. There are a few problems with this. Number one, it's absolutely exhausting to live like that utterly exhausting. To stand against the desire of your heart is a massive struggle. And you will know, if you've ever tried to resist any temptation, how agonizingly exhausting it is to keep telling yourself you're not going to do what your heart desires. That's not just me. The trouble with evil things, with sin, is they are appealing. We want to do them, at least initially. But then, if the first thing is that it's exhausting, the second thing is, it will not be too long living your ordinary life on planet Earth when something will happen that will also require all the emotional energy you are now putting into living against the desire of your heart. So something else will go wrong. Something will need your attention. Something won't work out right. You'll have a bad day at work. You'll, you'll wake up grumpy, whatever it might be. You'll have a bad pizza, whatever. And all of that will suddenly require your emotional energy. But you can't give your emotional energy to that because all your emotional energy is going into resisting this thing you're no longer going to buy because you know you don't need it and you can't afford it but your heart still wants it. And you give your emotional energy that's protecting you over here to something else and what happens almost immediately? Sorry? Hello? You give in almost immediately. You have a bad day and it's over. And you're back to square one. And there's two things you'll do. You'll either be brave enough to have another go and you'll be caught in that repentance, fail, repentance, fail, repentance, fail cycle in your Christian life. That's pretty miserable, isn't it? What fun's that? 
Or, or you'll say, this repentance stuff doesn't really work. I'm going to pull into a spiritual lay-by here. I'm just going to park that thing that I know needs dealing with. I'm not going to really resist it anymore. I'm just going to just leave it there and hope it, and it eats away insides of our lives. And so we tend not to talk about repentance very much. Because Jesus made a brilliant point early on in Luke's Gospel when he basically says it's impossible to live in a way that is different to what's going on in your heart. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from the thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, the mouth speaks, the mind thinks, the hands do, the feet run, out of the overflow of the heart. And we see this in our lives, don't we? Young people allow what's in their heart to come out because they haven't learned to guard it with social graces. Older people, sweeping generalisation here, have no longer got quite the same emotional energy to keep their hearts guarded. So some of the stuff that's in there springs out. The odd cantankerous older person. The odd stubborn younger person. There is a sweet spot when you're 41 and a half. (laughs) But apart from that, agony, trying to live against my heart. If repentance is trying to change our behavior without changing our hearts, we're doomed. And we've made it like that. I've talked about trying harder, put a bit more effort in. And we get on this cycle of repentance and fail and repentance and fail. So two things happen, you feel miserable about it or you park it. And we live in a slightly more, slightly less rather intentional Christian life than we wanted to. Because we know there's this thing. When the message of judgment was preached to the Ninevites... When they were confronted with the reality of their nation's evil, of the violence and wickedness, the king's heart was broken with sorrow. No king puts on sackcloth and ashes without something going on in his heart. Would you agree? His heart was appalled by the reality of what he'd become, what his nation had become. His heart was broken. Repentance equals a change of heart. Jesus pushes this home now in Luke's Gospel again, uh, verse 35, using a different metaphor. See to it then that the light within you, the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it is dark, it will be completely lighted as when the light of a lamp shines on you. But what if, what if part of the light that should be in you, what if part of the condition of your heart is darkness and not light? There needs to be a lining up, says Jesus, of what's going on in your heart and what comes out in the way that you think, act and behave. And so Jesus then launches into a scathing attack on the Pharisees because that was their exact issue. They tried to behave in ways that made it look like it was all sorted out, but so often and so easily, their hearts would be betrayed by some of their 
actions. And so he launches into six woes, verse 37 and following, verse 42. You don't love justice. You act like you're a lover of justice, but when it comes to it, you don't. You betray the state of your heart. Verse 43, you go for the important seats in the synagogue, and when you do, you betray the state of your heart. Verse 46, you place huge burdens on the people, and it betrays the state of your heart. Verse 47, you kill the prophets and so on. We could go on. What betrays your heart? See, what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees, you wear the right clothes, and you go to the right places, and you parade yourself around looking like you're doing the right things. But every now and again, in your attitudes and then in your actions, what's true in your heart slips out, because it's impossible always to live against what's really going on in your heart. And as the uh, story unfolds, it moves uh, uh, a couple of chapters on. And uh, goes to a, a brilliant moment in verse 10 of chapter 13. Verse 10 of chapter 13. Where Jesus is uh, acting in a way that will expose completely the state of the Pharisee's heart. Uh, Verse 10, on a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, woman, you are free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Now, the Pharisees believed in God's kingdom. The Pharisees believed that God wanted to set his people free. So Jesus gives them an example of God doing exactly what they are supposed to long for, what they're supposed to stand up for, what they're supposed to celebrate. But what happens? For verse 14. Suddenly, their hearts are betrayed, indignant. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. The synagogue ruler said to the people, there are six days for work. So come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bounded for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? Well, of course, obviously, but their hearts are betrayed. What betrays your heart? heart. Interestingly enough, if you go back to Luke chapter 29 where we started, what did they ask for? A miraculous sign. What have they just got? Did it help? No. No, a miraculous sign will expose the work of God or lack of it in someone's life. It's dead simple. What's the issue in our hearts today? If you're trying to love your spouse and your heart is still angry or bitter or something is unresolved, sooner or later that will spill out into your behaviour and probably does in subtle ways all of the time. If you're trying to give up some sin that you enjoy, and that's the trouble with sin, until our heart is changed towards it, it will master us. I will not stop sin in my life 
until my heart is changed, until I, I see it for what it is. I see that it's disgusting and destructive and damaging and degrading and disgraceful and any sin is all of those things before a holy God. Repentance is to change my heart, not to try and alter my behavior. I think it's time to stop struggling against our hearts. We create a veneer of respectability. It's what Jesus was so cross with the Pharisees about. Instead of allowing our hearts to be changed. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Worship his holy name. Let me sing like never before. Coming straight out of Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, my heart, all that's within me. That's why when God was always calling the people to repentance in the Old Testament. He always talked about their hearts. Return to me with all your heart. Fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Break your hearts. Rip your hearts and not your garments. Tear your hearts, as the New Living Translation says. The whole of chapter 12 is devoted to to hearts that need to be broken before God. Hearts that are duplicitous, verses 1 to 10. Hearts that are status-driven, verses 13 to 21. Hearts that are materialistic, verses 22 to 24. Hearts that are fickle, verses 35 to 40. Hearts that are lording it over others, verse 42 to 48. Because Jesus rams right in the middle of all of that, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. We can say we love Jesus, but we give ourselves to gods of success and materialism. We say we love the lost, but we give ourselves to our own pleasure. We say we trust Jesus, but we seek our own control. And and it's because God needs to do a work in our hearts. And so David got it sus, didn't he? Search me, O God, and know my... He didn't say, search me and tell me where I'm doing wrong things. Know my heart. Know my heart. It's just an invitation this morning for you to invite God to do some work in your heart. Because honestly, you can try and do the right thing, but until your heart is touched, repent, fail, repent, fail, repent, fail, repent, fail, repent, fail. Or I'm not going to worry about that much anymore. Fail. Invite God to do a work in our hearts. What's in our hearts will come out one day. The Bible makes that very clear. In the end, it's interesting, isn't it? When, when, when talking about the judgment and you think about the things that you've done well and, 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 uh, and the things you haven't done so well and you're like thinking, well, there's good things that side and there's not so good things that side and you're, you're kind of weighing it out. What will God say? God says, I'm pushing all that aside. I just want to look at your heart. Oh, my word. He wants to look at my heart. And we can choose magnificently to bring our hearts into the light before him today. And no judgment? No. No grace. Remember, judgment is coming, but grace is being offered. I can bring my heart to Jesus. And something inside each one of us is going, well, well, this is for the non-Christian, isn't it? This is for the person that hasn't repented and believed yet. And right in the middle of all these verses, um, Peter asks exactly that question. 
he says to, he says to Jesus, who, who are you talking about? Verse 41 of Luke chapter 12. Peter says, Lord, are you telling this parable to us? Are you speaking to us? Or just those people that don't believe in you yet? And Jesus answered in such a way as to say, I'm talking about you. I'm talking about you. And then the whole section ends, verse 34 and following, about Jesus weeping for Jerusalem that wouldn't refuse to change their hearts and that judgment was coming, a desolate house there would soon be. And so I just leave you this verse that David cried many years ago when he hit the nail on the head, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. What does God need to do in my heart today? Let's pray.